Good morning, church. I'm sure some of you, uh, probably all of you heard this morning that uh, we lost our beloved Harvey Willis this morning, uh, who struggled greatly with <clears throat> many health problems. Um, there have been many tears shed uh, this morning with the Willis family. Our prayers are with them. Um, you know, it was funny, as I was driving back over, I, I, <laughs> I questioned whether or not, you know, I would be in a good state to preach. <laughs> and of course, I could hear Harvey's voice. <laughs> preach on. There is only one thing that Harvey would have us do here this morning, and that is to preach the Word of God, especially in light of, a, in light of death. And in light of a man whose life had been so impacted by the gospel that he finished well. He finished well. So we rejoice in that. And we thank you for your prayers. And the Willis family appreciates you guys and, uh, and all that you do for them. Let us open in prayer. Heavenly Father, it's under your banner that we join this morning. Lord, even as we have faced difficult things this morning, and Lord, even the passing of a saint, Lord, you are faithful. And it is through that that we are reminded of your faithfulness and your goodness. Lord, we ask that you would help this preacher, Lord, that you would help this congregation, Lord, to hear your word. Lord, that we might know what is the height and length and depth and width of the love of Christ. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we step into 2024, we opened last week's message reflecting on some New Year's resolutions, as it were, for the body of Christ, as a, well, really as a body of believers in Lanesville, Indiana, asking what is our commitment, what is our command in Scripture, what will we endeavor toward together? As 2024 begins, we're all, a well, all well aware that our year will culminate with an election. Oh, what fun that will be. Of course, the candidates have already been on the campaign trail, and it, it seems the election season seems to get longer each time, doesn't it? It's kind of like Christmas music on the radio. It used to start after Thanksgiving, and now we hear it in October as the candidates have been participating in debates and giving stump speeches, one theme has been consistently coming up amongst what well might be considered the conservative candidates. That buzzword phrase is religious freedom. They stand for religious freedom, that they support religious freedom. And of course, everyone in the world, in the evangelical world, will all nod their head in unison I've never heard anything but positive connotations and assumptions from the evangelical community about the concept and the principle of religious liberty. But is that correct? Are we thinking biblically about this subject? Do we have a biblical worldview when it comes to the topic of religious freedom? We must ask, am I an American first, touting freedom of religion, and a Christian second, or do we seek to be a biblical Christian, no matter where we are from? Yes, I love America. Yes, I love our Constitution. It is an incredible guiding document, but we must endeavor to first think biblically. Not as an American first, but as a Christian. 
We have a higher passport than a blue book that says United States. We're a citizen of heaven, born again. Our new passport says new heavens and new earth. Now, a forewarning, this opener is a bit longer than normal. And it's most assuredly going to step on some toes, perhaps jar some thinking, make some folks upset, and that's okay. Not only would Harvey approve of that, he used to tell me, Pastor, you've offended me greatly today. And he loved it. But even the great George Whitfield said that it's not even a good sermon if you're not mad with yourself or your preacher by the end. So let's see if we can make Harvey and Whitfield proud. So what of this phrase, religious freedom? Is it a good thing? It is, a, is it a biblical cause that we should rally around? Well, the Southern Baptist Convention actually has an, an entire lobbying arm of the denomination called the ERLC, the Ethics and Religious Liberties Commission. That's part of the SBC. So the concept of religious liberty, a, a is, is it a, a closely held tenet of American evangelicalism? You bet, it's near and dear. What should it be? Is it part of a biblical worldview, religious freedom, religious liberty? It's certainly an American concept. Is it a biblical one? What does Scripture say? Let's walk through what it means, what it's calling for, and find out. That means I'm setting down my American flag, as much as I love it, and picking up the word. Paul exhorts us in 2 Corinthians 6.14, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Now Paul here, is, he's talking to the church at Corinth about, well, really how to conduct our lives as Christians in a fallen world. Giving us general principles to, to guide us and to live by. He's saying, hey, watch your partnerships. Watch who you join forces with because you're of two different dimensions. Like light and darkness, they're, they're fundamentally different. You have nothing in common with them. And Paul goes on in verse 15 to give another example to, to bring home his point. Paul says, or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? This is light and darkness. Paul is saying that the unbelieving world is not governed by the principles of righteousness and faithfulness. They're not concerned with godliness, but rather the pagan world, the wicked, are governed by the principles of Satan, of darkness. And Paul's word here for Belial is a word he's using for Satan. That's not hyperbole that's, or extreme language. We are a part of two fundamentally different systems. One is dark and one is light. And they couldn't be more different. And guess which one is going to influence which? If you put a good apple in a barrel of rotten apples, do the rotten apples get good or does the good one go bad? If you put one rotten apple in a barrel of good apples, what happens to the good? apples meaning it will always be the christian that is forced to change or compromise if it wishes to join with belial if you wish to be yoked with unbelievers it will ultimately not work they are incompatible you are eventually going to run headlong into the commands and the convictions of christ and you will be stuck 
And yet, what do many well-intentioned Christians love to do? Many will join forces with that very world, even with false religions, to advance certain causes that we see as good, don't we? Perhaps we'll join with the Mormons or the Catholics to fight abortion, for example. The association of Christians and Muslims joined to fight poverty and homelessness. Take your pick. The examples are everywhere. Now, there's a fancy word for this. It's called being ecumenical, ecumenism. The dictionary would define that fancy word as, quote, a movement that promotes worldwide unity among all religions through greater cooperation, close quote. So question one, as we work our way back around to lay a foundation on, on this issue of religious liberty, should a Bible-believing church or individual be ecumenical in their thinking? Do we join with other false religions to promote some sort of, of unity or toward a common goal or, or a cause that's, that's noble or noteworthy or worthy cause? The answer is no. Ecumenism has no place in the biblical church. Paul did not tell the church at Corinth to join with the priests of Aphrodite's temple there in Corinth to help fight the rampant social ills that were all around them. In fact, just the opposite. How did the apostles respond through the entire book of Acts? And throughout the epistles, when they encountered pagan religions and worldviews, they cast them down. They shared the truth. They radiated the light of Christ. They certainly didn't join with them. Beloved, many evangelicals have fallen for a lie. The lie that we can join forces with darkness and it will somehow aid the kingdom of God by promoting certain causes or values, or societal benefits, it's folly. It's never worked. It will never work. And this very ecumenism is the fundamental foundation upon which the religious freedom movement is built. As Christians, we believe that if someone is worshiping a false god, any other god than he that is revealed in Scripture alone it is idolatry. Any belief system that draws someone away from the truth is, by definition, demonic in origin. It is ultimately leading people to hell. Is it the job or the aim of the biblical church to make sure that we have as many satanic religions as possible out there for people to bow down to? Are we in the habit of doing Satan's work for him? But we must observe. But we observe. That, that's not how many in evangelicalism view it, do they? do they? They view supporting religious freedom as a way to protect Christianity, don't they? If their pastor were to declare that he could give two licks about some notion of religious freedom, oh, they would clutch their pearls and they would howl at the moon. How could he say such a thing? If we don't have religious freedom, what will happen to Christianity? What? Say that again. 
Say it again, and this time listen to the words as they come out. Are we asking, what will happen to the Christian church? What will happen to Christianity? What will become of us if we don't have religious freedom? No, they'll cry. We have to support all the other satanic systems because it helps keep our rights alive. (laughs) Saints, may I share two biblical truths that shouldn't be a secret. One, there is already 100% total, complete, thoroughly enshrined religious freedom for every false system in the world. Every false system is 100% free and 100% funded. Why? Because it's of the lie. It's attached to the father of lies. It's of the world system. They are free. The lie is always free and funded in a fallen world. The powers of darkness will never silence their own. Now, they may look completely different, Atheism, Islam, but they all have the same master. And they are free as a lark, and they don't need our help. And we see that in all matters concerning the world, don't we? There's always money and funding for the lie. Now, a biblical church may struggle to even meet a meager budget, but a Hollywood movie to promote the grossest immoralities will have hundreds of millions to pay for it. That's how it is on this side of eternity. Satan is the prince of the power of the air. And Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4.4 that Satan is the god of this world, meaning the god of this age, meaning that Satan is the major influence on the ideals and the opinions and the goals and the hopes and the views of the majority of people. That his influence reigns supreme over the world's philosophies and education and commerce. That the thoughts and the ideas and the speculations and the false religions of the world are under his control. And have sprung from his lies and deceptions. Okay, I get that, Pastor. But what about the Christian church? That's why we fight for religious freedom. To preserve our right to gather and to worship. Now, I may not agree with them or what they believe, but supporting them means religious freedom for us. Satan grasped this, saints grasped this with both hands. The church of Jesus Christ does not need religious freedom to advance. To think it does is to not understand what the church is, And it is to forget who the head of the church is. Sad news flash for all concerned. Christ does not need us. He doesn't need us to fight for all in our country to be free to commit idolatry. And to support Belial. Support false religions. Protect the darkness in order for the church to accomplish her task upon the earth. Religious freedom, they say. Check out the church in Iran. Check out the church in China. Explosions like we could never imagine. People who are ravenous for the word of God. 
grows so staggering, the governments are scared to death of it. Oh, but how? They have no religious freedom there. The church of God is not subject to the whims of the world. It is sovereignly orchestrated, prospered, advanced, and grown by the dictates of Almighty God and not by some congressman who supports religious freedom. If we think we need to support what Scripture calls wicked, that we need to join arms with false systems to protect our own ability to worship, then we don't know what the church is. And we don't know who God is. And maybe we don't. In the land of religious freedom, people are free. Free to do what their lusts demand. And that is precisely what they do. And we fight to make it available to them so that somehow we might be allowed to continue to exist as Christians. That's folly. In the many lands out there of no religious freedom, the church is exploding. And in the land of bald eagles and apple pies and religious freedom, a man would long watch a football game before he ever came to church. And who can blame him? America has told him that simply being free to choose is the highest good. We told him that it's all equal and it's all the same anyway. We're fighting for your religious liberty to go to any church you want or just sit on your couch and worship at the Church of the Holy National Football League because we have nothing more important to say. The true church of Jesus Christ that he bled and died for has no practical, biblical, or theological use for any secular concept of religious freedom. Whoa. Mad yet? None. Where there is no such thing, where religious liberty does not exist, where the church is perhaps even persecuted, no freedom, the flame is growing stronger. And where it does exist, where we do profess religious freedom, we have grown fat and lazy, and we've fallen asleep. There's no need to stay awake and vigilant, you see, because the government says we're free. There's no wolf at the door. Go to sleep, church. Yes, losing religious freedom may mean persecution. And we desire to live peaceable and quiet lives to the extent possible that we can. But when in history has persecution ever been bad for the church? When? The winds of persecution only fan the flames of the gospel. It breaks the gray lethargy that had descended upon his church. Nobody wants persecution. But if it's a choice between losing our comfort and a lukewarm, lazy church that's neutered and weak with no voice of clarity and conviction to a lost world, I know what I'd take. You know, the persecuting and the exploding church in China, they pray for the church in America. 
Read the Voice of the Martyrs magazine. They pray for us. They pray that persecution might come to us. (laughs) We pray for religious freedom to come to them. They pray for persecution to come to us. I wonder what they know that we don't. The biblically-minded Christian should harbor no desire to join arms with every satanic force out there, making every demonic religion available as possible, thinking that by doing so, we might somehow maintain our ability to worship. Beloved, that's a horrendous theology with no basis in Scripture. Yes, our forefathers left their lands, and they came here to pursue religious freedom. Tell me about that. They came to flee a pagan system in the state churches that they might worship Christ freely. The freedom our forefathers sought was not to promote every worldview and religion out there with the hope that we can still do our thing. No, from the pilgrims to the Puritans, the goal was the worship of Christ. Not to be confused with what we're being sold today. Don't do it. We are not relying on the government or the goodwill of other false systems to protect God's church and to ensure our survival. That's God's territory. So as the political speeches start to ramp up and you start hearing that buzz phrase, let us think biblically. We're not Americans first. If you've been born again, we're Christians first. That is our lens. I won't ask for an amen to the opener this morning. I'm going to leave that to Harvey in the back. You hang on to that amen and chew on it and give an amen toward heaven later today when it hits home. Last week we began our two-part series titled To Catch a King. Having completed the Three religious trials of Jesus from Annas to Caiaphas to the Sanhedrin at the temple. We've now moved on to the secular trials of Jesus. With Jesus having now been hauled off to the Antonio Fortress known as the Praetorium. Which was you know, a building of course virtually right up against the temple. That not only housed over 600 Roman troops. But also was where Pontius Pilate would stay during important times. Like Passover. It was the best place to keep an eye on the temple, right? As you could look down into it and to quickly put down any riots or insurrections which the Jews were famous for. And as we will see in a few messages, had just already occurred. That's actually where Barabbas comes in later on. We saw last week in the opening of chapter 15, first verse, that the full Sanhedrin, all 71 of them, had, had met hastily. Just as the sun was cresting the Mount of Olives, making it technically daylight, giving the trial a veneer of legitimacy, trying to wipe away the scandalous show trials that were happening between 1 a.m. and 4 a.m. And they bound Jesus there at the temple, binding him, of course, why? To to make him look guilty, to make him look dangerous. It's all for, for optics and for show. And they led him over to Pilate. Now, interestingly, ironically, hypocritically, we saw that the Sanhedrin members themselves would not go into the praetorium. 
where they brought Jesus. John 18, 28, why? So they wouldn't be defiled and could partake of Passover. <laughs> that irony was not lost on us that those two who were conspiring to murder the Son of God were at the same time concerning themselves with being defiled by entering a Gentile place. They had captured the king with no idea what they were doing and who they had bound. Though they should have known. They should have known. Jesus declared it with clarity. He performed only miracles that by their own tradition only Messiah could have performed. Of course, the hearts of these men had murder in them. That's why Jesus was brought to Pilate. Only Rome could wield the sword. Only Rome could execute. And that is precisely what the Sanhedrin had come for. They were there for a death sentence. And of course, we took a hard look at who Pontius Pilate was. We looked at his past and his personality, his ambition. All of that gave us insight into his actions that would ultimately lead to a delivery of a death sentence. Today, we go inside the praetorium. We watch the interaction of someone who also has no true idea he's captured the king. We're going to see a, a dizzying array of movements by Pilate that will kind of need to be pieced together to capture the, the fickle nature of this man, his very vacillating indecisions. And yet in the midst of all Pilate will do in our text, we will be reminded Jesus is the main story. Not only the responses of Jesus, but the silence of Jesus all tell a story. They all reflect a truth. They all point us toward our Savior. And in that, we will glory. So with that, let us look to our text this morning. Mark 15, 2 through 5. Mark 15, 2 through 5. And Pilate questioned him. Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, you yourself say it. And the chief priests began to accuse him of many things. Then Pilate was questioning him again, saying, You answer nothing? See how many accusations they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so Pilate marveled. Let's pray. <coughs> Heavenly Father, as our steps grow nearer to Calvary this morning, Lord, as we look at those who have captured a king, who have held within their grasp the very author of life, Lord, that you cried out, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Lord, we are struck with the same heart this morning. Lord, that's drawn in a hundred different ways and directions. Lord, it is you that must clarify us and focus us and bring our hearts to your word. Lord, that we might behold the God of the word. Lord, that we might be changed. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would cause this word to do its job. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, how many of you have ever been to a proper Broadway show? 
Perhaps like a, a big theater production, right? The big stage where you have the actors and the singers and the props. And most, and most of them usually have a, a main actor, the lead role. And throughout the play, that lead actor, he's going to go back and forth many times, isn't he? They'll go from the backstage to the front and to the back again. One thing we know as the audience is that what is happening on the front stage is not at all what's happening on the backstage. In fact, the scene, the the conversation, the atmosphere, the environment couldn't be more different between the front stage and the backstage. Yet that main actor must pop between the two again and again as the show goes on. And today's scene really is a theater, for lack of a better term. It's a show. And the audience is the Sanhedrin. They're looking at the front stage. The main actor is Pilate. He's coming in and out, but the one making everything truly happen is already behind the curtain. And of course, the atmosphere couldn't be more different. The audience, the Sanhedrin, really has no idea what's being said or done behind that curtain. Only the main actor who keeps popping in and out. It's not until we look primarily to John's gospel and Luke's as well to some extent that we're really going to to grasp almost the the comedic gyrations of this political animal known as Pilate. It's one of those those challenges of Mark that sometimes to get a fuller scene, we, we have to look holistically at the accounts of the other Gospels, right? We see our actor pop back and forth, if you can believe it, eight times. Eight. (laughs) From the front stage to the backstage. And this is not over a long period of time, mind you. Eight for those taking notes. You'll be relieved to know we won't detail all of them this morning. Only three of them. But still, we need to follow this scene. So as we open our Bibles, Mark 15, 2, let us turn first to John 18. Turn with me in your Bibles, beloved, would you? To John 18. We'll need this to follow along. And keep a bookmark, keep a finger in John's gospel, because we'll be digging there as well. A forewarning, there's a lot here. (laughs) There's a lot here, as always there is. So press in for understanding this morning, saints. Clear your minds of the morning. Be expository listeners. Beginning at verse 29, John 18, verse 29, we're going to watch the play unfold. Therefore, Pilate went out to them, verse 29, and said, what accusations do you bring against this man? Now, there's our first entrance, okay? Pilate coming out to the praetorium after Jesus has been brought in. Okay, Pilate wants to see Jesus' accusers. He wants to hear their charges. This this is really the beginning of the Gentile trial. Verse 30, he goes on, they answered and said to him, If this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. We read that last week. So Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jews said, ah, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Now, very quickly, it's during movement one here. Okay, Pilate's first entrance onto the front stage that Luke 23, 2, no need to turn there. Luke gives us an even fuller picture of these accusations that are brought against Jesus here in this moment. And you'll note, none of these are religious charges. These are charges to get Rome interested. 
because they need an execution. So Luke reads this, and they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation, first accusation, forbidding taxes to be paid to Caesar, there's two, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king, there's three. And it's that last charge that makes Pilate come awake. All four of our gospel accounts show this. You've got my attention. A king, you say. That would be treason against Caesar. John's gospel now says, Therefore Pilate entered again into the praetorium. Main actor, backstage again. There's our second movement. And summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Now here's where we join Mark's narrative text at verse 2. Okay, looking at verse 2, and Pilate questioned him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, you yourself say it. Now, as always, Mark is, he's very truncated, isn't he? He's very blunt, he's very brief in his writing. Now, wanting to add a little more color to it, was it that simple of a conversation? A lot more happening backstage, wasn't there? Now, again, looking to John 18, we get a much fuller picture of this conversation. So verse 34, if you put your bookmark there, look with me. John 18, 34, listen to this exchange. Jesus answered, are you saying this from yourself or did others tell you about me? Wow. Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priest delivered you to me. What did you do? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be delivered over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Therefore, Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, You yourself said, I am a king. For this I have been born. And for this I have come into the world. To bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Whoa. (laughs) What a gold mine. (laughs) If we were to ever preach through John, you know we would camp there for many a Sundays, don't you? (laughs) Are you the king of the Jews? This is not asked in sincerity. This is not asked in an unknowing way. Pilate probably thinks he has really another crazy on his hands at this point. Maybe a zealot? Maybe an insurrectionist? Who knows? He won't think that toward the end. (laughs) But right now, this is one more problem on his plate that he has to deal with at Passover. But of course, no man spake like this man. Can you imagine, dear ones, standing before Jesus and have him say what we just read out of John? There's no evidence that Pilate ever came to faith later in his life. In fact, just the opposite from historical records. He was still killing Jews. But here is our reminder that salvation is of the Lord. Hear the essence, the very essence of truth, the very one who created you, the greatest preacher, the greatest teacher to ever walk the earth, 
could stand before you and give you a sermon like none other. And unless God grants salvation, unless he sovereignly opened their eyes to who he is, the response will be as Pilate gave. Verse 38, Pilate said to him, what is truth? Here now is movement three for Pilate, last part of verse 38. And when he said this, he went out again, out he goes, stage front, to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him. (laughs) Now here now is the first of three times that Pilate will declare to this religious mob that he finds no guilt in Jesus. How interesting. That in the beginning, the Sanhedrin brought three accusations. And over the course of the trial, Pilate will give three exonerations. I find no guilt in this man. He's done nothing wrong. He's explained to me what his kingdom supposedly is. And while I probably think he's crazy as well, he poses no threat to Rome. He says it's a spiritual kingdom. Not a physical one. He has no army behind him ready to pounce. Not my problem. This is a religious matter. And I'm certainly not going to have him killed over it. Was that what the mob wanted to hear? That lit a match, didn't it? We came for an execution. And we're going to get one. Look at their response. Verse 3 for our slides. Mark 15.3. Mark 15.3. And the chief priests began to accuse him of many things. Now, what exactly were these accusations? Luke 23, 5 tells us. No need to turn there. I'll read it for you. Luke 23, 5 tells us exactly what these accusations were. But they kept on insisting, saying he stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee. Oh, even as far as this place. Now, a brief segue here, if we may. Understand we have a lot of moving parts, and I don't want to overwhelm, but these these secular and religious trials, they're, they're onions with many layers, okay? With each of the four Gospels all giving their, their beautiful angle of the diamond. But it's here, when we say this, that he stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, that we should hear the proverbial record scratch to a halt. Right there's a bingo. (laughs) Our political animal pilot sees a way out. He's Galilean, you say. Hmm, well, well. Look what Luke tells us. Now, when Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's, jurisdiction he sent him to Herod who himself was also in Jerusalem in those days now I would love to dive into Jesus being taken before Herod or rather Herod before Jesus but Mark does not record it but I want you to understand when where and why it happened very quickly now chronologically this is going to happen after our text today in Mark 15 verse 5 So between verse 5 and verse 6 is when Jesus is taken to Herod. All right, now taken where exactly? Herod was right here in Jerusalem because of Passover. He was right there already. 
So he didn't have to go far, I assure you. And why do this? Well, very simply, Pilate wanted to pawn this Jesus problem onto Herod and off of his plate. It's really that simple. Now, I'd love to dive into that interaction with Herod, and perhaps I briefly will touch on it next week. But know that when our text ends today, that is when Jesus is hauled off to Herod before being brought back again to Pilate in verse 6. So finally, let us look at verse 4 and 5. I'm going to read this as one. Verses 4 and 5. This really is the magnificent thrust for Mark. Then Pilate was questioning him again, saying, you answer nothing. See how many accusations they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer. So Pilate marveled. Well, first we see another movement by Pilate. Back into the praetorium he goes. Backstage again. Outside is the rabble-rousing of a mob that has murder in their eyes. And inside stands the majestic, silent Christ. And Mark writes that for us to see the contrast here. The blinding contrast that no doubt even Pilate could see. Beloved, even the world recognizes the fruit on the tree of Christianity. Because what is the human instinct when accused? To defend yourself. What about when you're falsely accused, which Pilate was pretty certain of? To defend yourself vehemently. And yet we behold the silence of our Savior. Why? We've taught on this recently already, so we won't do a deep dive. But why, way of reminder, why, verse 5, did Jesus make no further answer? There are many angles to that answer. Yet scripture shows us that Jesus had said all he's going to say to these hard-hearted people. Jesus knows every thought and every intention of every heart involved. He knows the hairs on the head of everyone outside that has murder in their hearts. He knows Pilate's heart. He knows it all. In three years, he's preached to these hard hearts, and they only wax worse. The time is over. The task has been set. The plan of the Father will be accomplished. Jesus' jaw is set like a flint toward Calvary, which at this point is less than two hours away. He does not need to defend himself against lies. To what end? His heart is set on the will of the Father. He has been strengthened for the task ahead. There's nothing left to say at this point about the wickedness of men. Repentance has been called for a hundred times. I'm going to the cross. I'm going to redeem my people the Father has given to me. It was prophesied of old that Jesus would be silent. And so he shall. Fulfilling every prophecy about himself with complete perfection. His silence before his accusers. Isaiah 42, Isaiah 53, being only one of 400 prophecies fulfilled by Christ alone. And still further, to even respond at all with a rebuttal or a refutation 
in many senses would be to lend credibility or legitimacy to the claims, right? Sometimes the most appropriate response is no response at all. And that's a bit counterintuitive. But often to do or to say nothing is actually harder than to do or say something. Because one is a product of crucifying the flesh and the other is giving place to it. Being quiet often takes more strength than talking. Ask a pastor, any pastor, he'll tell you. (laughs) And in that vein, silence can often be stronger than words. And of course, if the truth of the matter, as MacArthur puts it, that it's not Jesus before Pilate, that it's Pilate who's before Jesus, why does he need to say anything at all? Jesus is the one in control. Legions of angels sit at his beck and call. Even as he hung on the cross, he could have had himself taken down. This play, this theater, is not the Sanhedrin or the Pilate or the Herod show. This is the Jesus show. Let the words I have spoken stand. Stand forever and always. Stand as a testimony against you. Stand as my word to those who would hear my voice. The voice of the shepherd. That how did Jesus do it? Remain silent. We, we get that, that he did it. But how? Jesus showed us how. He demonstrated it for us. And Peter, later in his epistles, actually tells us the, the inner workings of our Savior as this is happening. How incredible is that? Listen to Peter as he reflects upon the suffering and the accusations against the Lord and his response. How did he do it? 1 Peter 2.23, when he was reviled, being reviled means to, to pile abuse onto someone. He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Boy, that, that needs to be me sometimes. How did he do it, Peter? Was, was it a secret key? Was this supernatural power? How does one keep a quiet and peaceful heart, even amidst accusation, even amidst turmoil and strife? Maybe you're a tit-for-tat kind of person. Maybe you're an eye for an eye. Maybe there's anger or temper. Tell us, Peter, how did Jesus remain silent? Here it is. But Jesus continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Entrusting, committing to, handing over to. And here Peter's language tells us that Jesus' entrustment is in the imperfect tense. And that simply means that it was constant. That Jesus was continuously doing it. He handed it over constantly. Right up to the end. He's being mocked on the cross. And where is Jesus' focus? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Even as he was breathed his last, Father, into your hand, I commend my spirit. Where is his gaze? Where is his focus? He was doing it continuously. He had fully and completely entrusted himself to the one who was faithful to steward that trust who held it all in his hand. I don't need to execute justice here and now. I don't even need an answer here and now. 
You've set a day, Father, where you will judge the world in righteousness, and you'll do it perfectly. You keep him in perfect peace, Isaiah declares, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. This is not some Zen sort of state of being where nothing touches you, where you don't weep or mourn or lament. Jesus did all those things. I did all those things this morning. This is a settled resolve of spirit. This is the resolute acceptance and surety that God is who he says he is and that he will do what he said he will do. Here and now and into eternity. And I don't care what my eyes see. I don't care what wayward advice my heart gives me. I don't take counsel of my flesh. Will the judge of all the earth not do right? Then be at peace, saint. This is the example of your Savior here in front of Annas, then Caiaphas, then the Sanhedrin, now Pilate, <laughs> continuously. And this is written for our instruction. And Jesus did it for our example. And you want to know what the world will do when you stand on this, when you walk this way? So Pilate marveled. That's what they'll do. So Pilate marveled. And they will wonder, what sort of person feels no need to defend their every right, to fight for their due? Saints, there is a fight. There is a battle. You fight sin. You kill sin. You wage war on sin. Yes and amen. That is where we draw our swords. But saints, the place, the places we are led by the divine providence and hand of God, the people and circumstances and hurts that are brought into our life, the challenges and immovable mountains that are placed right in our path, in nearly every circumstance that is not a conflict with sin, where we do draw our swords, <laughs> the disposition of a child of God is a sweet contentment. It is silence before Pilate. Be silent. Moses stood with the Israelites on the shore of the Red Sea. There was no way out. What did Moses say? Turn and fight? You have a right to be free? No. Moses told his people, the Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. Echoing again to his people in Deuteronomy 1, lest they forget. Then I said to you, do not be in dread or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. What echoes of Peter? Entrust yourself to him who judges justly. If Pilate sees a king, <laughs> if he knows he's captured a king, he's a king in chains, and whoever saw such a thing, powerless, there's no crown or robe, and he won't even defend himself. 
How strange. Last week, you'll recall, those who weren't here, you may miss this, but we left King Caspian, high king of Narnia and emperor of the Lone Islands. We left him beaten and mistreated on those very islands, having been captured by evil slave traders with no robe, no crown, no regalia on. They had no idea they'd caught a king, their king. What else they didn't know is that the entire ship's crew watched this capture take place with their ship's spyglass. And all the king had to do was give a signal. And they would have rushed in to save the king with just the swing of a sword, freeing him. But that call, that signal from the king never came. Just a short time later, the king would be set free from slave traders. And now with the king free, it was time to set things right. And the king donned his full golden suit of armor. The flags were raised. His legion now in tow. They marched right into the town. Right into the slave market. They declared every slave free. Everyone there who was held captive was set at liberty. The word of the king had spoken. And then you know what he did? He marched right into the hall. Right into the palace of that wicked governor. And they flipped his table over. And the king sat down on his throne. Spoiler alert. That's how the story ends. That's how the whole story ends. Pilate has no idea he's caught a king. There was no crown, no robe, no regalia. And Jesus could have given the signal at any time, flaming swords from heaven to the rescue, but he won't. His mission is fixed. He must set at liberty those who were held captive, you and I who were held in the slave market and left for dead. Hopeless. Our king led captivity itself captive. And he sat down at his throne. And he sits at the right hand of God. And he'll judge justly from that throne. Now this morning, you may not hear any trumpets or see any flags waving. But there is a king. The one who, is, who was silent before his accusers now has the voice of many thunders. And his offer today is that of mercy. Though our sins be red as scarlet, we'll be made white as snow. He'll not give us what we deserve. If we come to the king in repentance and faith, he'll forgive our sins. He'll remove that impassable canyon that stood between you and God by that sin. And he'll give you a new heart. He'll give you a new mind, new desires. And he'll fit you for an eternity with him. It's our prayer that everyone in here has caught the king. If even by the hem of his robe, just the hem, it is enough. Grab hold. You may call out for mercy. You will see his kind face. Let us pray.
Heavenly Father, as there is both joy and sorrow in our heart this morning, Lord, we thank you for the preciousness of your abiding spirit. Lord, that ministers to each one of our hearts, even as your word is preached. Lord, we want to take this moment to thank you for the joy of knowing our dear brother Harvey. Lord, he brought so much joy. And we were blessed to know him. Lord, we know that what we do here is serious business. Lord, we ask that if anyone does not know you in a saving way, Lord, that this morning we would be reminded. Lord, your scripture tells us that it is better to go into a house of mourning than into a house of praise. It reminds us what we are and who we are and who you are. Lord, we need that reminder. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.